I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the Beastie Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas for business. Joining me today is Simon Johnson. Simon is the Professor of Entrepreneurship in the Sloan School at MIT. He's worked on global economic crises and recoveries for 30 years, served as the Chief Economist at the International Monetary Fund, and authored many best-selling books, including Jumpstarting America, White House Burning, 13 Bankers. And we're here today to discuss his latest book, very interesting book, I think, with implications for all major businesses, Power and Progress from Public Affairs Press, came out in, in May, uh, which he wrote together with Darren Ajimoglu. The book takes us through the history of technological progress and uh, explains the powers that influence its direction. And in particular, he examines what it takes for technology to cause what he calls shared prosperity. This seems very topical to me because everyone is making either very optimistic or very pessimistic statements about AI. So I'm interested to uh, to learn more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Simon, and congratulations on the book. Thanks. Nice to be with you. So what was the, the trigger and the motive for writing about such a, a big topic, Simon? Well, John and I have been interested in, in economic history and the long-lasting effects of technology, among other things, for, for like 25 years. So we've been working together on and off. But I think it was really the to my mind, the presidential election of 2016, Martin, that sort of triggered both of us to say, what exactly has happened to jobs in America? What are the implications of that? And could we get more shared prosperity? And of course, as we began to write the book, it became clear that AI was going to become you know, a very important and, and big topic. So that's where the book ends. But we do try to give all thousand years its, its proper due. And, and there's a lot of other a lot of material in there about how we got to ChatGPT and, and its uh, fellow travelers. Great. So let's, let's define our terms because indeed technology, progress and, and power. What do you mean by progress precisely? Well, the definition of progress that we like is exactly related to shared prosperity. There's been many technological transformations where some people, a few people have done really well. Most people have not gained. Maybe some people have actually done worse. The effect of the cotton gin on the American South, for example, and the intensification of slavery would be a perfect and rather, rather horrible example. So we're looking for instances where most people, I don't think we can say it's always it's ever been all people, but most people have a chance to live better lives because of the way technology is harnessed. I see. So technological innovation then is the thing which increases the productivity, but you're saying that technological revolutions are limited if they don't create shared prosperity. Yes, of course, some, some new te- innovations don't necessarily impact productivity. We may adopt them with excitement about potential impact. So uh, social media would be a, a good example, Martin. And then we find that there's really some unpleasant unintended consequences. But in general, you're right that the sort of core linkage in economic and economic history is new technology. We can do something better. Oh, we've got increased productivity for some people. Great. But does that map into higher wages, a better health, more opportunity for those people? Or do the gains get captured by the people in charge of the technology? So as far as I can tell you, the the core of your argument is that this equitable advancement is not inevitable. It depends not on the nature of the technology, but the political and social forces and context that surrounds it. Is that roughly right? That is exactly right. I think that's a very nice summary that you put there, Martin, of of the whole sort of central thesis. I think a lot of times, because we had a good run from the late 19th century into the mid 20th century, we've built this cultural perception of more technology, better lives. But if you look over the thousand years, that's actually a bit more of the exception than the rule. And if you look at what's happened since 1980, it's been more of a reversion to what we had before the 1850s than a continuation of what we had from about 1850 to into the 1970s. 
how does timing play into this? Is, is your argument that the, the equitable advances that we need can and should come quickly? Or are there many cases where even over the long run, we don't achieve equitable distribution? I ask that question because disruption is, as you know, is a very popular word in business. And uh, often when technological disruption is talked about, you know, the logic is, well, in the short run, of course, we may have some displacement, but eventually we'll all be doing better. Yes, we, we do hear that a lot from people who are optimistic about technology. I think the key word there is, is eventually. Actually, I feature that in all my talks about the book, Martin. I say, how long is eventually? Well, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, I, I would say it started sometime in the 1720s. The silk mill was put up outside Derby, for example. I'm from Sheffield, so I identify with that sort of change. You know, we know that that's the 1720s. In the 1840s, we know that small children as young as six were pushing coal carts deep underground with their heads. That was a job, right, for children. And so that's 120, 130 years. And it's hard to argue that there was a lot of shared prosperity in that period. After 1850, things go much better and wages do rise and living conditions do improve, so does public health. So the benefits do kick in. But if I told you, you know, generative AI is going to improve wages 120 years from now, I think you'd say that's a bit long, Simon. Couldn't we, couldn't we get something earlier in terms of benefits to go along with and, and to match or even overcome the disruption? So you do look at, indeed, you know, a thousand years of economic history, but let's start with the present. I mean, it's been said that the much celebrated digital revolution hasn't actually resulted, not necessarily only in shared prosperity, but even the productivity gains have been questioned so far. Um, what would be your view on that? Well, it's definitely the case that the shared prosperity impact has been weak and, and quite different, of course, from what came before the digital revolution. So after World War II, there was absolutely a 30-year period, roughly speaking, where wages rose and the wages of people with a lot of education rose at roughly the same rate as the wages of people with, with less education. What happened after 1980 was an increase in wage dispersion. Highly educated people have done relatively well. People who didn't finish high school, didn't finish college, have done relatively, relatively badly. So that, I think, is, is, is pretty much an established result. And it's not just in the US. The US has an extreme form of it. It's also in, in almost all industrial economies. As for the measure of productivity, of course, there's still a lot of debate about whether this is measured correctly and to what extent there are benefits, for example, from having a, a cell phone now, a smartphone that didn't exist in any form in 1980. And so there are some tricky measurement issues there. I think it is fair to say, Martin, that the productivity impact of the digital transformation has been disappointing. But I think it's been disappointing primarily because there's been so little positive impact on wages at the lower end of the income distribution. I think when a rising tide lifts all boats, we're generally pretty patient. But when the rising tide, well, it's not really a tide, is it? It's some sort of weird movements in their water current so that some people have done extremely well, other people have really struggled. And that process has not reversed itself either through natural market forces or through any kind of government intervention. So unless one had held ex very extreme political views, I, I guess, you know, it'd be fairly easy to make a, a sort of a moral argument that the right thing to do is to have, you know, aggregate productivity gains and to share the, the, the benefits of that. Is that essentially your message? Or are you saying that also the economic benefits are self-limited if we don't achieve the shared prosperity? Well, that's also a good point. <laughs> but the, the, the main point that we're making, Martin, is actually that, so the standard thinking, which again, worked pretty well in the post-war period, but now has to be questioned, is that you let the market do its productive thing. Out of that comes a distribution of incomes, and then you can do some redistribution through taxes and, and subsidies. We think that you at least need to go upstream of that process and say, okay, why does technology give you a particular distribution? What's shaping technology? What's the vision there? Could you get something different and more inclusive? Right? So that's the, our main argument. But now that you mention it, absolutely, I would agree that if it's more inclusive and, for example, 
there's a problem we've talked about a great deal in the US, the lost Marie Curies and the lost Einsteins. The idea being there are people born in some socioeconomic circumstances and geographies who never get plugged into the education system. They never get to use their full potential. So in a more inclusive model, more of those people get to shine and to rise. And so that would definitely help you with the creativity and the breakthroughs that, that would raise productivity. So you, you sort of sketched out a sort of a model there that doesn't involve especially worrying about technology, the idea that the entrepreneurs do their thing and the markets do their thing. And then the normal mechanisms of government, you know, for instance, taxation policies, create the redistribution that we, we need to get the desired result of shared prosperity. Is your contention that that has never really worked, that's never been really enough, or that that's become especially difficult in today's societies or with today's technologies? I think it's become especially difficult because countervailing power, social groups, trade unions, self-confidence of government, that did challenge big business and did force more redistribution earlier in the 20th century, for example, those forces have become quite weak. I was on a panel uh, this weekend, just, just recently, at the Hay Book Festival, which is a fantastic event. I was on the panel with Paul Johnson, no relation, head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies in the UK. And he has got a really interesting book about how difficult it is to redistribute and how, what the limitations are and, and, and how that fits in the overall set of public finances. And what I said to him and what I said to, to the audience was, I think it's time to go upstream and to think about what flows into that distribution of incomes before you try to get the government to tinker around the edges, because it's not going to do more than tinker around the edges, at least in the modern political economy. Right. Because I'm wondering, what would be your argument that we need to worry about that upstream technology component, as opposed to simply saying, no, this is a problem of you know, taxation policy and equitable social policy. You know, where the productivity gains come from is you know, to some extent irrelevant, and perhaps one shouldn't mess with too much because you don't want to you know, create disincentives to innovate. Let's, let's trust the normal mechanisms of government that might be you know, broken in the modern era and might need fixing. But I, I think you're saying, no, no, we, we need to actually think about the, the forces shaping the, the innovation and, and the development of the technology itself, as I understand it. Yes, well, this was a big discussion, as I'm sure you know, Martin, before World War II. And in World War II, a lot of people in the US and elsewhere changed their minds because they realized that there were many technologies that could be applied to the war effort that were just sort of sitting around or people, talented people who could be applied to develop radar. And, and of course, the Manhattan Project came out of that, that kind of thinking. And at the end of World War II, the, the, the US authorities had a big think about how much money and what kind of resources they wanted to put into science from a public point of view. And we got a big push on publicly funded, federally funded research and development from that experience, which lasted well into the 1960s. And in my previous book, Jumpstarting America, I argued with John Gruber that we should learn the lessons from that experience and, and re-up that commitment. So at least change the level of innovation and change how much money we put into the public support for general knowledge creation, which is hard to appropriate in any given private company, and therefore you don't get enough investment from a purely private perspective. I think that argument has actually gone quite well. And, and the Chips and Science Act of 2022 in the United States reflected a lot of the arguments that we made in 2019. So you can certainly have government intervention and public purpose to change how much innovation takes place in, in our view. Whether you can change the direction, well, that's the topic of this book. So can we tilt it, for example, let's talk about surveillance, Martin. There's a lot of money going into surveillance, worker surveillance, surveillance of the workplace. Now, some of that might be sensible, some of it might make workers safer. A lot of it seems like it doesn't. It's about forcing them to work harder and maybe to be less safe. So I think there's gonna be a discussion about to what extent we should encourage so much effort in surveillance, or should we, for example, limit the patent protection for surveillance technologies. I think that's probably where we'll go, some version of that in the United States. Other countries will have a lot more surveillance, a lot more worker oppression. 
So then there's going to be a question, how much do we want to trade those countries that put guardrails around surveillance? How much do they want to trade with countries where workers are oppressed using surveillance, their wages are kept down, and those regimes do not necessarily become more friendly or less confrontational just because we're buying their goods. So I think all of this is, is very integrated, Martin, and, and absolutely questions we need to consider now. And how does this intersect with the competition between nations? Because you can, you can see in AI, I think, and digital technology, generally Europe taking a more sort of you know, socially conservative stance. On the other hand, they seem to be sort of very disadvantaged relative to China and the US in terms of the advancement of the technology. So it's not quite a level playing field. Doing the right thing in the sense of your argument may perhaps be perceived to create some sort of competitive disadvantage. How do you think about that sort of line of argument? Well, I do think the US is in the driving seat with regard to generative AI. The Chinese are probably number two. I don't think that anyone is proposing seriously that the US adopt a European type approach to regulation. We're certainly not. I, I don't think you can stop innovation and, and nor do we want to. The question is whether you can tilt it one way or another, focus more on human augmenting technologies and, and raising wages and figuring out the public-private partnerships and investments that will make that happen. I think the China threat is, is somewhat exaggerated at the current moment, but you know, just definitely, you're definitely right. There's a competition, technological competition between nations, including who gets to move first and who creates more jobs. And the Europeans are a little bit of a bystander in this process. But perhaps there are applications, perhaps there are problems to be solved, perhaps there are pieces that can be built on top of the basic fundamental technology stack that Europe can excel in. That remains to be seen. So let's come on to what you call countervailing forces. So you say that there are social and political and other forces which surround a technology revolution, an, an episode of technology progress that nudge it in one direction or the other, you know, mainly at the expense of workers or mainly in the direction of shared prosperity. What are, what are some of those countervailing forces? Well, the big ones, I think you can see quite clearly in the Industrial Revolution, that early on, there was very little voice for anyone who wasn't quite well-to-do. And, and the Chartists, of course, in the mid-19th century, really wanted universal suffrage. They wanted a fairer political representation of parliament. They didn't win in, in the day, but they did change the political discourse. And they did argue that some parts of the country, like the north of England, where I'm from, and the big cities should be more fairly represented in parliament, and that that was a fundamental precondition to having better public policy, for example, on the, the health and, and disease in cities. So I think that that kind of political movement, trade unions, I think, have played a role, although you know, we're very specifically talking about trade unions that participated in productivity gains and asked for their members to be trained on the new machines in order to get the higher wages. So that's a very particular form of trade union voice and, and, and action that we're seeing as a positive countervailing force. And of course, the big one was government. I mean, to the extent that in the 20th century, government were willing to take on much more expensive regulatory roles against large monopolies, so-called antitrust movement, as well as regulating how consumers were treated and other, other forms of uh, environmental protection, for example. And, and to the extent that governments have backed away from that kind of regulatory role, that may also weaken countervailing forces that, that are relevant. This propensity for unequal gains or equal gains, is it largely intrinsic to the nature of the technology we're talking about? Or is it more or less independent of that and mainly dependent on these countervailing forces, do you think? I think it's largely independent of the technology. So a good example would be tractors, mechanization of agriculture. In the United States, what happened was as mechanization spread across the Midwest, a lot of those people who no longer had employment or high wages in agriculture moved to the cities and actually went to work for McCormick's reaper company and made the machines that further mechanized agriculture. 
When the Soviet Union saw this, and Joseph Stalin in particular was a big fan of mechanization, he took a lot of that same technology. In fact, he forced uh, many Ukrainians and others into starvation so he could generate the grain so he could buy Western tractors. They used that as an instrument of state control and, and a form of centralization on the basis of collective agriculture. So on the one hand, tractors and, and other forms of mechanization were a bastion of democracy across the, the industrial Midwest and capitalist development. But exact same technology, Martin, was used as, as a cornerstone of building Soviet centralized control and power. So same technology, different structures, different people in power, of course, with very different objectives, but you get very different outcomes as a result. So let's come to um, AI, about which there's much excitement recently. So firstly, on the sort of figuring about the distribution of gains for the time being, do you think the excitement around the technology and its potential for producing productivity gains is, is exaggerated? or Things are certainly moving very, very fast. There's a lot of interest. A lot of our clients are adopting these technologies. Is it set to change the way that we work? Or, or is it one of those bubbles where the, where the prospects are exaggerated in, in your reading? Well, the, the prospects, those, those things are not inconsistent, Martin. The prospects in 1999 for the internet were clearly exaggerated, and yet it did change everything. So I think I see it through, through a very similar lens. And specifically on productivity, yes, there is a lot of potential. And I think there's a lot of potential for making individuals more productive in their tasks and therefore hopefully raising their value to, to companies, their value to their customers and, and therefore their wages. I think it is also possible that the exact same technology or very similar technology could be used just to fire a lot of workers so that average productivity might go up, but you're not going to necessarily pay the remaining workers that much more. And self-checkout kiosks in grocery stores, which are not AI-driven, but they are a good example of the kind of digital automation that we're not enthusiastic about, because what you really do there is reduce the power of the remaining workers who don't get high wages when you adopt the self-checkout kiosk. And that's shifting the power between capital and labor in ways that isn't good for the workers, isn't good for shared prosperity. You can still get positive benefits, even from what's called so-so automation. But that requires creation of new tasks in other ancillary activities, downstream, upstream of groceries, value added in the grocery store, whatever. And, and we haven't seen that. So I think it could go either way, Martin, is the honest answer here. And we're trying to push it in the direction of more productivity gains, higher wages, more benefits for more people. So you would argue that this is one of those situations where we're not set up for automatic shared prosperity with, with AI, assuming it achieves its full technical potential. We're not necessarily well set up for shared prosperity. Absolutely. I think, we've, I think if you look back over a thousand years, very few societies have ever been well set up for automatic prosperity. I think it's always a fight. It's always a discussion. You, know, you always need to make the arguments and persuade people they should pay higher wages. And that's how you tap into the, or share the gains from higher productivity. I think we're at a difficult moment, Martin, because a lot of countervailing powers have been weakened over the past 40 years. And that widening gap in, in incomes shows no signs of reversing in any long-term systematic way. So we think it's a moment of vulnerability. It's certainly a moment of paying attention to this and making the argument and trying to persuade companies who are absolutely in the driving seat to focus more on augmenting the abilities of the people who work for them. Is there a challenge here about the relative speed of the technological phenomenon versus the relatively unchanging slow speed of, of the regulatory sort of compensating loop? In other words, the, the speed of government reaction to these things is quite mismatched with the accelerating pace of innovation and diffusion of innovation. Is that a particular challenge in this case? Yes, absolutely. Look, all, all the countries that are rich in the world have some sort of rule of law, which includes not changing regulations for business in some precipitate, uh, arbitrary and unexpected manner. So in the US, you put proposals out for comment, you get comments, you revise, and then you publish. 
and then there may be a legal appeal. So that takes years, and this technology is moving considerably faster than that. I do think there will be a regulatory response on, on, response on some dimensions. I do think deep fakes are, are a big source of concern for, for many companies. I do think there's dimensions of plagiarism that's going on on intellectual property theft, for example, around images. That's going to be a problem. And, and I think there's other aspects of how you use people's likenesses, what you're allowed to do for movie actors, for example. Those things are going to become quite salient and, and because of their nature, they'll get front page coverage. But that will be a, a little bit more of a sort of pick and choose thing for a legislative response. I don't think you'll see a broad regulatory push on this. These compensatory measures, the ones you listed in your book, the countervailing forces, they, they seem to be mainly to comprise government action, which is quite reasonable. I mean, and things like you know, taxation policy and, and safety regulation and privacy regulation, I mean, they're the prerogative of, of government. Our audience is mainly corporate leaders. So I'm wondering what can and should corporate leaders do considering the you know, incentives that they face? Well, there's two important and powerful traditions within computer science and, and technology, Martin. One is so-called machine intelligence, which is about inventing algorithms that can match human capabilities and, and displace them. So I, I want to make a, an algorithm that can beat the, the top human chess player. And once I've done that, I'll do an algorithm that displaces clerks in the grocery store. That's human intelligence. That's displacing people, replacing people. That's the predominant trend. The other trend that I really want people to pay attention to, and I, I think there are going to be very significant returns here and, and a, a lot of positive impact, including in, in the bottom line for shareholders, is human augmenting, or we call it machine usefulness. So ways in which you can use the algorithm to improve the productivity of your people, to boost what they can do, to increase what younger employees can do, to increase the amount of tasks that can be supervised by older employees. It plays out differently across different sectors as far as we can see right now, Martin. But I think helping people become more productive and compensate them appropriately is the real secret gem in this entire process. A lot of companies may ignore it. A lot of companies may say, well, it's just easy. We'll fire some people and do what we're doing anyway. I think finding new things that your people can do augmented by the machines, that's the really clever thing here. Yeah, I guess the challenge is that the cost reduction opportunity is faster usually and more certain. You know, if you set out to reduce costs, there's a high probability you can achieve it. I think anything to do with imagination, innovation, anything on the growth side of the equation usually takes longer and, and, is, and is riskier. So we can, we can agree that it's socially desirable, but could we reasonably expect that corporate leaders with all of the incentives they face to, to take the hard route uh, here, to take the harder, perhaps the longer term thinking route? Well, I think it's a portfolio approach, Martin. Obviously, varies, varies by industry and precisely what sort of competitive pressure you face and what sort of opportunities you think. But to some extent, switching routine tasks, routine writing over to GPT supervised, I would recommend by a, a smart human who understands the foibles of, of the software. Sure, I, th I think some of that is unavoidable. But also at the same time, thinking about what are the new things that could be created? What are the breakthroughs? What are the new products? I think experimentation is going to become cheaper. I think it becomes a lot cheaper to use that young talent. I actually think, Martin, the bigger problems is going to be with outsourced labor, meaning low-wage workers in developing countries, because for many of the tasks that they were doing, the software algorithms plus some skilled, talented, educated people in the, in the higher-wage countries, that may be better from a cost perspective than the outsourced labor. So just, just sending it overseas, just sending it to India or the Philippines, I think that's the piece that's actually going to be challenged the most from a Western corporate perspective. On non-disruptive innovation from uh, Kim and 
Marborn. Are you familiar with that? It's, it's essentially the philosophy that, contrary to the recent sort of popularity of the idea of technological disruption in, in, in business strategy, there's always a non-disruptive alternative. So if you focus on not you know, one technology replacing another, but on creating new markets, for example, usually the cost of social disruption is, is less. Some of the key elements of this being sort of focus on new markets and existing markets, building on things that already exist rather than replacing one thing with another, considering the social and the economic consequences in parallel. Does that sound like a microeconomic corollary of the sort of philosophy that you're talking about, or is there a fundamental difference in, in that way of thinking? Well, I haven't read the book, but I will now. Thank you for the tip. I think there is some overlap, certainly new markets, creating new things. We're very big on the idea that you can create new tasks. So when Henry Ford revolutionized automobile production with the assembly line and then bringing electricity to the assembly line, he also took an industry that was making 3,500 cars in 1900 to making 3 million cars or close to it in 1929 with 400,000 people involved in the industry. So new opportunities, new markets, absolutely. I think what I would worry a little bit about is sticking to what we've done already and building what we're, we're doing and doing that with fewer people because now we can have generative AI replace people in some of the more routine tasks. That, as you've been saying, Martin, it may be a hard logic for corporate leaders to ignore. That is, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong or illegal or immoral about it when they're doing their jobs, but it is going to be in creating the new things, the new tasks, that's where we're really going to boost the demand for labor. And so just focusing on what you're already doing and being less disruptive, I'm not sure the way that would roll out would, would really get us to what we want. At the micro level, another possible countervailing force might be the behavior of, of investment funds and investors. You do say in your book, if I quote you correctly, that investment funds should consider the, the purpose of the technology in their financial decisions. And it seems to me to mean the, the nature of the application, a worker minimizing sort of application versus a sort of a you know, prosperity creating application. Could you tell us about that idea, the sort of the incentives for investors and the things that investors can do? Sure. Well, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about environmentally sensitive and sustainable investing. I understand there's some controversy about the criteria used and how it gets implemented. But I think the general idea that the ultimate investors, so the people who are saving and the people with wealth, they care about social impact and they care about whether they are poisoning or overheating the planet. And therefore, their fiduciaries or investment managers should be careful also. I think that logic is pretty sound. So we're trying to encourage people to think about the way in which the technologies that they're supporting through their investments are helpful or not helpful to human development and to the development of additional human capabilities, which are then compensated appropriately. So obviously, that's a decision for investors and a conversation between them and their managers. But it doesn't, that doesn't seem inappropriate to us. And it seems quite consistent with the reprioritization that the investment industry itself says it's taking seriously with regard to the environment. I mean, I think the general structure of this challenge for, for businesses is a uh is a familiar one, which is there's usually a relatively certain short-term approach, and then there's usually somebody imploring for a longer-term approach. And where it's possible, you know, the solution to those dilemmas is often to to make clearer the the sort of hidden hidden self-interest to actually argue that the apparently riskier and slower move is actually in one's long-term self-interest. I'm I'm thinking that in this particular case, some of those revealed self-interest arguments might be things like, well, if you don't do something about the social costs of this technology preemptively yourself, then you're going to get regulated later and that may be more expensive or you know, that regulation may go too far. And um, I guess another, you can make a similar argument about social consequences that you know, if you don't 
seem responsible in the eyes of your consumers that eventually you're going to have reputation problems and you're going to pay through that with sort of you know transaction costs and and sort of legal legal fees and so on how how far could we go with this sort of revealed self-interest argument in saying that actually it is in the interest not only of society but of each company to look for these sort of creative shared prosperity creating ways of applying new technologies well i think those arguments are are good and valid and they can if that matters to management, that helps motivate the people in the company. I'm all for it. I do think there's another strand, though, Martin, that we could weave together, which is where do the breakthroughs come from in your industry in thinking about how to deliver customer service or, or where the market is going next? One thing that appears to be true, obviously, generative AI is still relatively young at this level. But what we're seeing is that it effectively interpolates between things that are done been done already. So when you do, when you when it, when it offers you autocomplete in your email, that's obviously a form of AI, a well-established one. And I often adopt the recommendations. But what I'm doing when I when I do that, I am basically reverting to the mean. I'm going with what most people say in that context according to the AI's tracking, which seems fairly accurate. Now, if you take that at a company level, that will tend to pull you towards, well, either you, you could say reversion to the mean, or you could say pull you towards mediocrity, right? So that things will average out. The, the weaker performers will be pulled up, but some of the stronger performers may be pulled down. And I think that's not exactly where most companies want to be, Martin. I think the spark of creativity, trying to push further, let's do something new, let's consider what hasn't been done by anybody ever and see if we can make that work. I think that's something that you're not going to get from, from over-reliance on AI. I think that's right. I mean, it's certainly the case or has been the case so far that the, the supernormal gains, the excess total shelf returns of long-term successful companies come predominantly through differential growth, not through differential cost efficiency. So I guess the argument would be, if you want to be not, not merely efficient, but to have a competitive advantage, perhaps the harder route is actually the sensible one. And of course, one of the requirements of, of something being competitive, a competitive application of technology is that it's hard to imitate. You know, if we could all buy a PC, then having a PC is not a competitive advantage if, if it requires a lot of social context and innovation and system change, then that potentially is a competitive advantage. From an economist's perspective, is there anything in that argument, do you think? Yes, I think it's a good argument. But I would also add on top that the speed of change may be accelerating, Martin, right? So to the extent that AI can complement your talented people and help them imagine systems and also work out systems. So the speed with which you can write software, for example, the speed with which you can spin up a computer game, the speed with which you can take an idea and turn it into a movie script or a book, that speed seems to have accelerated dramatically. Now, I'm not saying we should, you should run it excessively because that's the mediocrity point, but I think there may be a scaling up factor that we haven't fully taken on board yet. And if that's the case, then my ability to disrupt your business or vice versa will be partly about who has the spark of creation. And, and that may come from people who are sort of outliers or, or not relying too much on the, on the standardized AI-driven knowledge base. But also on, do you then use AI to ramp this up and say, right, we've got a solution. Let's implement this at 1,000x immediately, which is a very complicated problem, right? And all the planning and supply aspects of that and not ordering too much or too little. Ordinarily, that takes us quite a while to, to work through in terms of planning. AI may supercharge the competitive race, in which case you should be looking for those creative, crazy ideas much more intensely 
because you don't have six months to sit back and say, well, look, we'll see what, you know, Simon and Martin may be on something, but I'll just sit back and wait and see what happens. I think that might be unwise given the speed of some of these changes. Right. What we'd call dynamic advantage as opposed to sort of scale advantage. Yes. Well, I wish we could go on, um, Simon, but it is a very rich and uh, substantial book. I, I won't say that it's an easy read, but I, I think this is a very helpful book for any any business person in the sense that all businesses are now technology businesses. And I think technological progress is so fast and so disruptive right now that there will always be social competitive and, and political consequences. I'm not an economist, I'm a, I'm a business strategist, but the book was very helpful to me. And I think, you know, widening the angle of my, my radar to understand some of these political forces. The, the other thing I really liked about the book was you used history as evidence. There was great pattern recognition across a very long period of time. So it put the exceptionalism of the present in a very broad context. So congratulations on the book and I'd highly commend it to, to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining me, Simon. My pleasure, Martin. I hope we can stay in touch as businesses and business environment grapples with these enormous changes. So let's keep talking and, and let's revisit these issues as the data arrives. Absolutely. So I've been discussing Power and Progress, our thousand-year struggle over technology and prosperity, which came out in May of 2023 from Public Affairs by Darren Ajumoglu and uh, Simon Johnson. A really interesting and thought-provoking read. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.